Over. But we begin the program today looking for, with another industry in Canada that is looking for a plan. We've had conversations with the hotel industry, with the restaurant industry, with the tourism industry, all of whom are unanimous in looking at the federal and provincial governments, mostly Ottawa, for a plan. Another group joining that parade is the cruise industry. Barry Penner is legal advisor to Cruise Lines International. Barry joins us this afternoon. Uh, welcome, Barry. Good to talk to you again. Good to talk to you, Sterling. So it's the absence of a plan that's driving these industries crazy. And of course, all of these industries that are, are, are making noise right now are the ones clearly hardest hit by this pandemic exercise, Barry, and the most in need of some kind of plan so they can get themselves and all the people they need to get it done organized in time. Tell us what the cruise line situation or position is today. Well, in terms of Canada, there really is no cruise industry today. Um, up until 2019, it was uh, contributing more than $4.3 billion to the country's GDP across, uh, you know, from coast to coast and coast. Uh, in British Columbia, that contribution was uh, quite focused here, $2.7 billion. But more importantly, 17,000 hardworking women and men uh, whose jobs depend on the cruise sector. Of course, that was uh, basically stalled in the water last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all understand why. Uh, Cruise has gradually been resuming operations in other parts of the world. Right. More than 500,000 people have now sailed, uh, both in Europe, uh, Asia, South Pacific, and now in the United States. Cruises are resuming as well as in the Caribbean. But uh, it, there will not be a cruise season this year for Canada. So, again, those uh, 17,000 jobs in B.C. and 30,000 across the country simply won't be happening uh, this year. So it's about a reopening plan, right then, Barry? It's about some kind of timeline attached to when all uh, the people involved in the Canadian industry can expect some activity. What do you hear? Well, what I'm hearing is increasing concern that uh, not only have we uh, missed the boat for this year, um, while other countries are gradually resuming operations very carefully, uh, but that there's a serious risk about next year. And... uh, and uh, if there is no resumption to speak of for Canada next year, the, there's a longer-term risk about Canada's reputation globally uh, with the cruise sector and tourists uh, globally, and also concern about this uh, U.S. legislation that's proposed to permanently remove the requirement for uh, foreign cruise ships operating out of the United States going to Alaska to have a stop in a B.C. port. Uh, there's concern that if Canada can't see its way through to a safe resumption next year, that the exemption could become permanent from having to come to Canada at all. Well, Barry, I thought that was what we were going to say that was used as the reason why it's not likely we're going to have a a, a cruise season next year because of the possibility of that legislation uh, from a landlocked senator uh, that that could uh, possibly turn that uh, tide against us. But in the meantime, Canadian cruise ports, and we're talking Vancouver, Victoria, Rupert on this coast, and of course, Halifax, Montreal, and and others uh, in the eastern half of the country, we're, we're out of business. We're closed for good. For how long? The current closure, Barry, expires when? Uh, the federal government, when they announced it in February, they said they were extending the cruise ban for a further 12 months. Uh, at that time, it was the, the longest cruise ban in the world. So Canada really stood out in that regard. Um, and uh, 
various the participants in what was the crude sector in Canada, from port authorities to tour operators and just tourism generally, tourism associations across the country, have been calling on Canada to send a signal that at the very least that ban will not be extended and perhaps could be ended a bit earlier to send a more positive signal. Sure. Given our increasing vaccination rates and also the policies that the cruise lines are adopting of requiring vaccination in order to get on the ship. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, Barry, because out of Florida, you were mentioning that the cruising business around the world is starting to pick up again, including here in North America, where some of the cruise lines out of Florida are now conducting, I think they're calling them trial cruises, in which all crew and all passengers are fully vaccinated. They're basically sort of, it's a cruise to nowhere. You go out for three or four days and you come back in, the ship is at limited capacity, maybe 25%. The whole deal is experimentally to see how things work. And so far, they seem to be working well. Uh, with with the, the relaxation of sorts of the border now for fully vaccinated Canadians uh, moved from the 21st to July 5th in terms of coming back and not having to quarantine, the government has shown a, a small degree of willingness to, to budge. Uh, have you heard any indication from them of, of uh, any, any indication at all that there might be some movement in favor of the cruise industry before next February? Uh, nothing specific. Uh, so as with other sectors of the tourism economy that are getting anxious about having some clarity about what the goalposts, uh, where the goalposts will be and what the criteria mm-hmm. will be, uh, the federal government has not yet landed on what that is. Uh, there is talk, you know, that vaccination is important. But then the question, I guess, defaults to, well, how will you confirm uh, accurately that people are actually vaccinated if they claim to be. And that's where I think governments are struggling to come up with a, uh, a more or less universally accepted way of proving your vaccination status. Uh, both in the U.S. and in Canada, there's discussions happening through a group called the Future Borders Coalition. Right, yeah. More, more than 70 different industry and government participants in that group. And they've been working at this, by the way, for over a year. Uh, and private sector participants have already developed apps that you could uh, utilize uh, to verify people's vaccination status. However, the governments have so far indicated that it needs to be a government-led process, and they haven't got there yet in terms of developing a, a satisfactory or acceptable way of uh, sharing this information uh, to government regulators at, at the border. Yeah, but you mentioned the Europeans, Barry, as being far, far ahead of us in terms of returning to some degree of normalcy with respect to their cruise industries. And as our prime minister discovered just a couple of weekends ago at the G7, the Europeans are way ahead of us on on international agreements vis-a-vis vaccination documents. Now, there there isn't a, a global accord or anything like that, but there are already agreements in place, working agreements between European countries. Why can't we use that model and apply it in other parts of the world like here in North America? Well, yes, uh, you're probably detecting some frustration on my part. That I am know, indeed. It's been, it's been discussed for 12 months uh, through the Future Borders Coalition, and governments haven't yet figured out how to make this happen. It is, in my view, very important that governments figure this out quickly if we yep. are going to get back to some sense of normalcy while protecting our public. Because people do have a right to be protected and to know that people visiting our country are properly vaccinated. I believe vaccination is the way uh, out of this pandemic. 
and it's a way to uh, to protect us and to protect our economy. I just want to note that uh, in addition to what you mentioned, the test cruises out of Florida, also the, the CDC in the United States has created two options, two pathways forward. One is to do some trial tests first. The other is to require essentially 98 or 95% of the passengers to be vaccinated. Uh, so most of the cruise lines are indicating they do want to see people fully vaccinated getting on their ships. Sure. And when the ships start sailing in a few weeks from Seattle to Alaska, the policy there is you're, you will have to demonstrate satisfactorily to the cruise lines that you are vaccinated uh, before you're allowed to board the ship. Yeah, uh, and, and from a cruise line perspective, Barry, that's not out of line at all. Because if I'm a cruise a passenger, and remember, it wasn't more than a year ago that we were, we were talking and almost holding our noses, talking about floating Petri dishes when the COVID thing broke out literally all over the planet, and especially on board some cruise ships. So why wouldn't a cruise ship passenger have every right in the world to say, I'd love to go on your cruise. I'm fully vaccinated. I need to know that everyone else on the boat will be too. Otherwise, I'll take my business somewhere else. And, and certainly I think the cruise lines understand that, that they don't want any more problems either, obviously. So uh, on behalf of their, their crew that also are going to be vaccinated, they want to make sure everybody's having an enjoyable and safe experience. Sure. I would extend that same concept can be applied to other sectors as well. Oh, yeah. That really, in order to protect ourselves, uh, we need to know that others are, are vaccinated. It certainly would help if others were vaccinated. Indeed. Barry, thanks for your time today. Great to talk to you. Um, uh, obviously not resolved. Do you have any sense of optimism? Obviously, there, there are negotiations. You're reaching out all the time. There's enormous pressure being brought to bear on the government of Canada, which is quite slow in terms of, uh, of the rollout to meet the rest of the world relative to many other parts of the world. Is there any sense of optimism at all before I let you go here that that we can get this thing resolved before next the end of next February when the current ban expires? Well, of course, hope springs eternal, but yeah. I'll, I'll share with you my concern that with a increasingly uh, it's looking likely that we'll have a federal election. What tends to happen then is the civil servants uh, don't embark on new initiatives, and I'm worrying that a federal election could really stall progress. Yeah. And working out the details of getting a safe resumption of cruise for Canada in 2022. Advanced time is needed to market these these uh, these itineraries if they are going to come to Canada, and also to provision the ships to to build up that supply chain that now has been withering over the last uh, year and a half. It, it's going to take time, and I worry that a federal election could throw a spanner in the works uh, because we haven't really got very far with the government of Canada or mm-hmm. provincial authorities terms of hammering out what would be acceptable so that work needs to start now uh, because we could be losing some time this fall if we have a federal election and it seems pretty darn likely too doesn't it barry penner thank you very much for this appreciate your uh, starting us off today and uh, raising some quite legitimate concerns on behalf of a lot of british columbians who really do like to go for a cruise thanks for joining us today thank you It's Sterling Fox in for Jill Bennett on this Wednesday afternoon. Our next guest has been quoted. We're talking lumber prices here. And of course, uh, for the last 14 or 15 months, millions of Canadians who otherwise would have spent discretionary income on travel or perhaps a new RV or other projects have decided to renovate because they've been locked down and not allowed to do much else. So over the last 15 months across Canada, the price of lumber has increased 
significantly. Here in BC, it's said to have tripled. And this uh, quote is attributed to our next guest. Quote, for a typical 2,200 square foot, three bedroom, two story home, those higher lumber prices will add well over $30,000 to the lumber package costs over and above what it was at the beginning of last year. Our guest is Ron Rapp. Mr. Rapp is the CEO of the Home Builders Association of Vancouver. Ron, good afternoon and thanks for joining us. Good afternoon. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, how is the lumber supply business in Vancouver these days? Apparently, Ron, it's actually getting your hands on a two-by-four that's more of a challenge, regardless of what they're charging for it. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. Uh, we're hearing this from our uh, lumber uh, supplier members, as well as uh, the contractors or builders and renovators who are uh, constitute our membership. And uh, there are uh, increasing difficulties of being able to uh, be able to uh, acquire the product that you need without doing adequate uh, pre-planning. So mm-hmm. everything is a question now, do not order at the last minute because you're not going to get it. And so what sort of delay time uh, is typical these days when you, you're contemplating an order and you know you've got to get it in in advance so that it'll be ready by? What's that delay time, turnaround time now? Well, I can't say for sure, but it's it's certainly measured in weeks, if not months. I mean, the, yeah. the more lead, the more lead time and the more notice you can give your supplier that you're going to need such product about this time is uh, is uh, is absolutely required in order to make sure you're not going to wind up short. I mean, the lumber supplier members are telling us that they are now uh, placing orders that are going to be received in the fall, so they're looking at a three to four month lead time on uh, on uh, orders just coming into their yards. And uh, if you're not uh, if you're not within that allocation, you have a, a real challenge of being able to uh, um, access material. It's interesting because you know, uh, from the consumer point of view, Ron, we we've learned in a bizarre sort of way how popular lumber has become because we're now noticing at construction sites and other places around Vancouver and elsewhere, there's a lot that the level of theft has increased. It's right through the roof, and so lumber is all of a sudden in the same category as copper and catalytic converters. Now that's that's a status that would suggest the bad guys know that it's it's become quite valuable and they're prepared to risk a jail time to get on and get their hands on some but the other group that is i think perhaps most impacted by this ron are your people the home builders you agree to build a home at a certain pre 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 agreed to cost and all of a sudden during the process of building that home some of the costs go up the builder's going to have to eat those if the if if the contract is firm in terms of numbers or is there some way for negotiation in that contract well it depends on the on the nature and the structure of your contract and and your relationship with the uh, with the client as far as that goes but a lot of work was contracted and committed to, you know, prior to seeing uh, the spikes in lumber prices. It actually also ties into delays in permit issuance because a lot of permits for work that is to be taking place now were, were, were applied for, you know, many, many months ago. Mm-hmm. And in the, in the intervening time frame, that contracted price that was relative to what was established in that permit application has, uh, has escalated significantly. So there was, uh, you know, uh, an introduction and some contract clauses of of escalation clauses, if you will, that if, you know, material costs exceed a certain percentage, then they would revisit that. Right. Uh, I I think it's unfair to 
uh, push somebody into producing something or being able to deliver something at, a, at below their cost when the, these uh, extraordinary circumstances have come to bear. Indeed. So now we're also hearing, though, as the as the economy ebbs and flows, nothing is ever fixed or etched in stone for very long. For example, I've got a global news report in front of me, Ron, that suggests about a month ago the price of a thousand board feet of lumber peaked at about sixteen hundred dollars, and today it's about half that. So we're we're getting the peaks and valleys, but even the valleys are higher than where they were before. Correct? And that's quite so. Uh, we have seen a reduction uh, to some degree in lumber futures uh, moving into the uh, third and fourth quarter of this year. And uh, I'm not sure if, if half is the appropriate uh, number. I was seeing more like 30% reduction. Right. But um, regardless, even at that threshold, it's still more than two times more expensive than it was in February of 2020. Mm-hmm. So the, the, you know, it's a, still a significant difference. And the biggest thing that seems to be affecting this recent downturn in, in, in prices is twofold. Number one, it's a higher rate of production on the part of the mills, which, you know, have been pushed into uh, uh, accelerating their reopenings sure. uh, and so on, as well as there's been a, a, re- you know, a small reduction in the demand of housing in the U.S., which has a huge influence on our market since a lot of our material goes that way. Definitely. But that's not seen to be a sort of long-term play. Uh, it's likely that uh, demand will resurge, uh, particularly as the market continues to reopen uh, post-COVID. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we could well see a resurgence in, in lumber prices. But everybody uh, pretty much consistently across the board says what we're seeing right now may be the peak, but we're still going to see a very significantly uh, increased level of pricing for the foreseeable future. Right. Interesting stuff. Now, uh, by way of, of your years of experience, Ron, as, as you're uh, talking to me, there are many people listening who are uh, contemplating. Many of them are homeowners. Many of them are young people still contemplating getting into the home market. And for anyone contemplating buying a new home or committing to a new home sometime this year, uh, you know, costs are, are, are variable. But what would you tell uh, a prospective home buyer, especially a new home buyer, with, re- with respect to prices and, and what to watch out for and what not to be scared by? Well, every, uh, every circumstance is, is different for those people who are looking to get into the marketplace. Uh, some are driven there by a need to expand space or, or, or different living conditions, that sort of thing, you know, going mm-hmm. from a, a multi, let's say, to a single family dwelling. And at the end of the day, it all comes down to what can you afford. Um, going into the marketplace now might be at a higher plateau than it was, uh, say, at this time last year. But at the same time, you're still in the marketplace and then going to be able to benefit from increases in equity and have to take the potential exposures of uh, decreases in equity. Sure. But at the same time, um, you know, there are uh, – steps being taken to try and cool the market, and we are seeing some, some signs of that right now anyways. Uh, the material component cost has certainly uh, affected the uh, overall price, but more, mm-hmm. more to the point, the, the price is really being driven by uh, a supply and demand situation in the marketplace in general. And overall, there is just way more demand than there mm-hmm. is supply, and that's what is reflecting the numbers. The material cost equation comes into how that's affecting the builders and the contractors in terms of their ability to deliver product within a margin that makes sense to them. Sure. 
Okay. Well, it's lots to think about, of course, and the and the sticker price, no matter what the cost of lumber, anywhere in Metro Vancouver, it's going to be seven figures, and you're going to have to sit down and think about all of those numbers a long time before signing on any dotted line. Ron Rapp, thanks very much for this this afternoon. Great to speak to you, and, and appreciate the opportunity to understand a little bit more about what's happening with lumber prices these days. Thanks. Thank you very much. Sterling Fox sitting in for Jill Bennett. And as John mentioned moments ago, temperatures are, well, a mix of sun and cloud, low 20s today. They'll warm up a little bit tomorrow and then a whole lot by the weekend. And by next Monday, the daytime high here should be 40 degrees. Yes, it's a heat wave, all right. And as we deal with these early summer heat waves, the province's Coastal Fire Center says most open burning activities will be banned. And that ban is in effect as of one hour and five minutes ago. Here to talk about it is Julia Carancy from the uh, BC Fire Service. Julia, thanks for joining us and good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Well, it's nice to have you with us, Julia. Tell us a little bit about, because there are, there are categories of open fires that are now banned, and we need to understand what those categories are, and then we'll talk about what parts of the province is affected by the ban. But we're talking Category 2 and 3 open fires. What does that mean? That's right. So here at the Coastal Fire Center, we have sort of three basic kinds of outdoor burning that we can regulate, right? So when we're talking about Categories 2 and 3, we're talking about Category 3 is our larger industrial type burning, so something that a machine would make a pile of, right? And then our mm-hmm. Category 2, we're thinking about smaller burn piles, so we're more thinking along the lines of our kind of our backyard burning, so something that's a hand-piled pile that's burned. So those two types of burning, which are the Category 2 and the Category 3, as you mentioned, are now prohibited in the Coastal Fire Center, except for the Haida Gwaii region. So that's very important to note. And that the fire center, so the Coastal Fire Center covers Vancouver Island, the Gulf Islands, Haida Gwaii, the Lower Mainland, and east to Manning Park in the south at the U.S. border and to Tweedsmere South Provincial Park in the north. So that's the area encompassed with the prohibition that went into effect, as you said, at noon today. It's an absolutely massive area, isn't it? Now, as we are going to higher, warmer temperatures in the days ahead, uh, what do you know? What can you tell us, Julia, now uh, by way of preparation at the Forest Service level? uh, What are you anticipating by way of dryness, this this summer ahead and and all of those sorts of things? Because you have to be prepared for these. What's the discussion about these days with respect to bans in uh, expending the bans due to extreme weather conditions? conditions. Well, uh, you are correct. Our predictive services specialists believe that the end of June and beginning of July will be warmer than seasonal in many parts of BC. Mm. And in the southern half of BC, forest fuel complexes are beginning to reach elevated drought conditions with high temperatures combined with relatively low humidity. So these conditions can contribute to the potential for worsening wildfire conditions when ignitions happen. So it's really important to understand that hot weather by itself does not create fires. We have not had any lightning-caused fires this year. That means that all of the fires that we've had so far this season have been human-caused. And virtually every human-caused fire can be prevented. So that's where we're reaching out with this message to the public and asking them to please use especially great caution when exploring the great outdoors, especially over the next few days, when we are expecting, as you said, 
potentially weather record setting temperatures. No question about it. And of course, you combine that, Julia, with the other reality that we're dealing with 15 months into a pandemic, many of which have seen us locked up for extended periods of time. <laughs> Folks are just dying to get the heck out of Dodge and go hey, somewhere yeah. and maybe have a campfire and, you know, relax a yeah. little bit. So well, are I'm we glad okay with camp- I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned campfires because, y- yeah. yes, sorry to interrupt you there, but yes. Oh, it's so okay. I was going to ask you about them. Yes, and I wanted to mention, if everybody wants to know, that yes, campfires are currently still allowed in the Coastal Fire Centre. However, again, because of the weather conditions and how dry it is, we are really asking, again, for the public's health to be extremely careful if you're going to have a campfire, especially this coming weekend. So Mm -hmm. a campfire can be no larger than a half a metre by a half metre or smaller on mineral soil. You need to have a good-sized fuel break around your campfire. Don't leave it. Don't ever leave your campfire. You have to monitor it. You have to have tools and water close by to put it out. And you have to put it out till it's cool to the touch before you leave an area. So we're really, really asking people's cooperation and helping us out. Well, and, and you know, it, it's uh, it's perfectly uh, smart of you to take a few moments, Julia, and remind us of those. I mean, it's super basic. It's super common sense. But when you've been cooped up for a good long time and all of a sudden you're out there, you tend to even forget and overlook some of the most basic things when it comes to safety, your safety and the safety of others, particularly in the woods. So I do appreciate that reminder. Any other bits of advice as we turn the corner into a, a temperature range that's going to hit four? in a couple of days? Yeah, I mean, definitely, because as you, as you know or may not know, we do have our own weather forecasters, and we, we want the public to know that the fire danger risk has gone from low to moderate to high in our region in just over a week. So we've yeah. really had this incredible drying trend, and that fire risk is really telling us that the forest is getting dry, that the forest is stressed. So we really just want people to know how dry it is out there. Hey, it's going to be a beautiful weekend. Go out and enjoy yourselves for sure. But just remember that virtually all fires that are human caused can be prevented. So please give us the help that we need in being responsible when you're out there having a good time. And um, if you do see a wildfire, please call 1-800-633-5555 or star 555 from your cell. And don't forget to check out the bcwildfire.ca website. You can also download the app to your cell phone. And then you can have all that information at your fingertips. Outstanding suggestions, Julia. And just before I let you go, when we enter any British Columbia park anywhere, there's always that indicator on the, on the right side of the road that tells you today's forest fire level. And it goes from green to yellow to orange to red. And I suspect we're already at orange, aren't we? In some areas we may be, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's a very good idea to pay very close attention when you see those signs to what they say and to act accordingly with according responsibility. So that's a great way to check because wherever you're headed, there's likely going to be one of those indicators and that'll give you a, a, a strong uh, behavior uh, indicator as well as to uh, the degree of caution, which should be supreme at all times, but s- uh, extra precaution, especially on a hot, dry weekend like this. Julia Carancy, thanks very much for being with us today. Uh, a great appearance on the radio and we do appreciate your time very much. Thanks for having me. Have a great week. 
Sterling Fox for Jill Bennett. Reminder uh, very quickly that the buzz lines are always open when we're on the air on the Jill Bennett Show. 604-331-BUZZ or 604-331-2899. If you hear something on the show that we don't have time for your calls for, but you really want to pop off about it anyway, we'd love to hear from you on the buzz line. And that includes a conversation we're about to have with the good folks from the BCSPCA. Lori Chortnick is the general manager of communities for our SPCA. Joining us now with the the annual hot car reminder. Lori, thanks for taking some time to do this. It's very important stuff. Well, thank you. It's good to have you with us. And, and the tagline this year from the SPCA is, if you need to leave your pets in a parked car, leave them at home. Absolutely. With the temperatures rising, the SPCA is really concerned about the safety of pets being left in parked cars. Last year, we responded to more than 800 calls about dogs in distress um, in cars, and the calls are definitely coming in as the temperatures are rising this week. So we just really want to remind people that um, it's not safe, even if you're parked in the shade with the windows partially open. The temperatures can rise so quickly, your car can become an oven. And unfortunately, every year we do get called out to situations where pets are either in critical distress or in some cases they've died. And it's just such a preventable tragedy. And, and, you know, you said you had 800 calls last year. And for goodness sake, Lori, last year was the year that not many of us actually went out much. So imagine as we return to something resembling normal, what that number could multiply to this year. Absolutely. And we know that people, they bring their pets with them because they love their pets. They want to spend time with them. But if people are going anywhere and they're going to have to leave their pet in a car, even if it's only for a few minutes, we just really urge them to leave their pets at home where it's cool, where they have access to water, where they'll be safe. Um, I think that's the trouble is people just don't realize how quickly something can happen. Um, Dogs don't have sweat glands in the same way that people do. So they can only release heat from their body by panting or by releasing it through the pads of their paws. So their internal temperatures can rise so much more quickly than ours. And it really doesn't take long before a really disaster situation can happen. Laurie, I'm sure you've heard this more than once, too. Well, you know, uh, I, I, I didn't park the car in the middle of the mall parking lot. I went over to the far side. I had to walk a little further, but it was shady over there. So I could put the dog in the car in the shade with the windows open a little bit. So no problem. Well, I think what we would say is, unfortunately, it is a problem, even in the shade, even with windows partially open. As I say, because dogs cannot release heat from their bodies in the same way that we can, uh, it's just not safe. And we see the tragic consequences every year. Yeah. So now let's talk about what happens when we are confronted by that situation. You're you're just out and about and all of a sudden you notice a, a very distraught looking creature in the back of someone's car and clearly the animal is in distress. Your instinctive response as a human being is to break a window and pull that little pooch the heck out of there and get him some water. That's against the law, isn't it? Yes, and we really appreciate that people do want to help in those situations, but um, it is against the law for anyone other than RCMP, police, or special constables of the BCSBCA to 
enter enter a vehicle. So what we ask people to do is to, um, even before they see a situation, if they can put the SBCA call centers number in their phone or the number of local police or animal control agencies, RCMP, anyone who can come out to help, have those numbers in your phone so that if you do see a situation like that, you can call right away and we can get someone out as quickly as possible. It's interesting that you would make the distinction, and I'm I'm asking you this quite deliberately. You said put the animal control number in your phone. Uh, this This is an important call, an important number to have close by, but the situation at hand with the distressed animal in a vehicle is not a 911. Well, it's, I mean, you can also dial 911 um, because, I mean, there's a lot of situations that law enforcement are called out to. So um, we always want to make sure that we can get the person who's closest and can get there the most quickly um, to there. So with our call center, when we have a, a call coming in, they will find the closest person that they can get. Uh, so that they can get there as quickly as possible. So it might be an SPCA officer. Um, they may have to refer to the RCMP if an SPCA officer isn't available. So it's just a matter of getting whoever we can uh, there in the quickest time to make sure that that animal is okay. But having said that, the safest way to make sure your pet is never going to be in that situation is to just leave them at home. We know We know that people love their pets and the way that you can protect them is by not putting them in danger in the first place. Yeah. Lines are open friends. If you want to jump in 604-280-9898. The other part of the conversation here is uh, what happens uh, when you are your car, okay, your car, you've gone into the store, doggies in the backseat. I'm only going to be a couple of minutes. You come back. It's maybe four or five minutes later. It wasn't long, but it was long enough on an extremely hot day like yesterday, Doggy is freaking out. Doggy is losing it. And there's some lady who's standing beside your car going, is this your dog? Is this your car? And she's really honked off and there's going to be a scene here. So that happens, doesn't it? It does. And we really encourage people. Obviously, the the most important thing is to make sure that the animal gets the care they need as quickly as possible. Right. Um, and there is an educational element. We always want to, to make sure that we're educating people. But I think when we approach it with judgment, we don't always get the best reaction from people. So even if people are outraged, if they can kind of control their temper a little bit, because the priority is to make sure that the animal gets help. And sometimes um, animal guardians, if they come back and they see their pet in distress, they're already feeling bad about that. So if someone is is then um, yelling at Piling them, on. They, they don't have their best reaction either. And we want everyone working together for the best interest of the animal. So, Laurie, as we approach the summer, we're actually here as of Monday or Sunday night late. Yes. <laughs> uh, we're, we're officially in summer 2021. As far as goals for the BCSPCA to accomplish over these summer months this year as our province, probably ahead of the rest of the country, slowly returns to normal. What are you people up to at the SPCA we should know about that you're trying to accomplish this summer? Well, my gosh, we were actually busier than ever during COVID, so we haven't slowed down at all. Last year, uh, we had such a rush of people wanting to adopt animals. Oh, I think yeah. People were, 
were home and a little bit lonely and just needing that companionship. So um, our adoption levels have been busier than ever throughout the year. And we're involved in a lot of programs, not just our shelter-based programs with adoptions and cruelty investigations and caring for animals in need, but it's been very busy as well for our outreach programs. So last year, there was a lot of people who were impacted financially by COVID. So we really increased our uh, pet food banks and our um, subsidized spay-neuter programs and a lot of just helping hand type programs for people who love their pets but may not have had the same financial resources to care for them. So it's been extremely busy that way. Um, And also for people who perhaps are in uh, situations um, with violence in their home, that Mm. certainly increased last year as well as people were at home and uh, a lot of difficult situations in terms of domestic violence were really exasperated last year. And so uh, we did a lot more boarding of animals. We have something called compassionate emergency boarding, where mm-hmm. if um, a person is needing to leave a home and are going into a shelter, um, a protection shelter that can't take animals, we do a lot of, of emergency boarding for those kinds of things. So those activities have been extremely busy lately. Our little uh, SPCA rescue dog, Gracie, is right outside my door this afternoon. Uh, the Aww. light of our lives, I can tell you that much. You know, uh, it's the best news about the pandemic from an SPCA point of view has to have been the incredible increase in pet adoptions across BC. And that is indeed a good news. Now, let's hope all of those new owners keep the safety of their pooches in mind and keep them at home instead of in the car over the summer months. Laurie Chortnick, thanks for this. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you. Great to talk to you. It's Sterling Fox for Jill Bennett here on this lovely Wednesday afternoon. Look, a few clouds in the sky, as John was just saying. It's a little cooler today. I was looking at the forecast for Abbotsford for the next few days tomorrow. Tomorrow, they're saying high 20s. And then by Saturday, by Friday, they're saying low 30s. By Saturday, they're saying mid 30s. And by Sunday, this Sunday in Abbotsford, they're expecting at least 40 degrees. So yes, the warm weather is definitely upon us. Hey, good news from Lotto Land. Somebody in BC won 35 million bucks last night in the Lotto Max draw. I believe the ticket holder or holders were in in Kamloops area. The shared jackpot, the other 35 million goes to a ticket holder in Ontario. And plus, of course, when they had these ridiculously huge Lotto Max prizes, they also spread the wealth around. And 11 British Columbians last night became millionaires. They won a million bucks each. And then, of course, there are subsidiary prizes as well. So a good haul for BC lottery players last night in Lotto Max. And by the way, the next draw will come up on Friday, of course. And they say the jackpot is going to start at 50 million bucks this time. So it's uh, 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 we're going to check in with a lottery people here now because, of course, uh, bait, betting rather on single games of football, hockey and other sports is about to become legal in Canada, and the provinces are going to be the ones to administer all of this. The Senate approved a a bill yesterday called C-218 that amends the criminal code around gambling on single sports games, currently illegal except for horse racing, in a bid to win back customers from offshore sites, U.S. casinos, and illegal bookmakers. Yes, that was the competition up until last night when the Senate approved Bill C-218. Uh, is our guest here with us here, Tim? Do we have uh, Le- Laura Garrett's with us from BC Lotteries? Could- 
Hi, Laura. Good afternoon. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's great to have you on. So how is it going to work? BC Lotteries, uh, well, Ontario Lotteries and Gaming will take it in Ontario. Other provincial boards and, and groups will take it, uh, the, the individual game betting in their provinces. And here it's been specified already right from the get-go. BC Lotteries will handle single game betting. How much a diff- of a difference do you expect this to be, Laura? This is a game changer for us, and we are so excited this week, and we can't wait for that bill to get royal assent, hopefully today or tomorrow, so that we can Mm. turn on single event sports bets for our players on playnow.com. So, you know, if you're watching the NHL playoffs right now, and you want to bet on the outcome of that game, depending on who your team is, um, soon, hopefully very soon, you'll be able to go online to playnow.com and make that wager. So you're pretty pretty set up by the sounds of this, Laura. You're, you're all set to go. You just need the formalities to be uh, concluded in Ottawa, and Lotteries is ready to drop the hammer and take in those bets. We are ready to go. We've been pushing this for this for a number of years. Our players have wanted this for a number of years. Um, previously, your, your listeners may not know that legally the only sports bets that were permitted in Canada were those requiring what's called a parlay, that means that players had to wager on the outcome of, of at least two different events. Right. So with this change, you know, we can offer single event sports bets and players who want to make that bet, instead of going to a gray market, what we call illegal websites, they can now come and bet on playnow.com, um, keep that money right here in British Columbia and put it to work for British Columbians. Yeah, right. And, 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 and you can also now bet on a single game. There's no need to bundle your bets with another team you don't care about. <laughs> so that, res- that restriction is removed. Laura, do you have any idea how much money, you were talking about the gray area where people go now to do those single game bets. Do you have any idea how much money per year we've lost to those other jurisdictions on this single game betting business? For sure. You know, over the last five years, we estimate that we've lost about $250 million from single event bets to those unregulated illegal websites. So that money is going offshore, probably building things like mansions. And we want to keep it here in BC, where we can build things like schools and hospitals. So that's why we're so excited about this change. We know our players want to make these bets, and we want to put this money to work for British Columbia. So uh, again, uh, is it is it a very much a by popular demand because people are, are obviously placing you said two hundred and fifty million bucks and I believe you. Uh, so there's a huge amount of money leaving British Columbia for this sports betting stuff every year. So are the players actually saying, you know, we'd really rather spend the money at home? Absolutely, our players have been asking us to to turn on single event sports betting for years. And as a regulated website, you know, players feel safe playing with us. They know that there's security controls. They know that when they want to take out their money, that they're going to be able to do that in a safe and efficient way. And I think another differentiator between Play Now and BC Casinos and even, you know, into the future when people will be able to at a, at a bar or pub mm-hmm. is that the health of those players is really prioritized. We want people to play in a healthy way and we're supporting them to do that where a gray market site may not have that same level of commitment as, as we do as a crown corporation. Interesting. Now, you also just moments ago mentioned BC casinos. So what's the story there, Lara? When can we expect to head back and drop some money uh, in a casino here in our own home turf? Well, first thing first is we're really excited to be able to reopen BC casinos as early as July 1st. 
Um, they've been closed since March of last year uh, due to uh, COVID-19. So we're really eager to get those doors open and to welcome back our players in, in a safe way. And then, you know, once once we resume operations, then we're going to look at what the, the sports betting uh, enhancements could look like. Could we see things like sports books, like you might see uh-huh. in a Vegas casino, sure, for yeah. example? Yeah. Maybe in the future when you're gathering with your friends at a bar or pub, which I think we're all so excited to do, Indeed. you can bet on the outcome of the Canucks game while you're sitting there having dinner with your friends. So I think it's a really exciting thing for, for players, whether it's online at a casino or even playing you know, a lottery ticket into the future. So again, really exciting news for us this week. Absolutely. And you know what? The uh, $250 million that's been leaving the province for this one specific item alone will be very much welcome to remain here and do much more good in its own backyard than anywhere else. Laura Garretts, thanks very much for doing this. Please let us know when you get the green light from Ottawa. Will do, and thanks so much for having me on to talk. Nice to have you along with this Wednesday afternoon. I'm Sterling Fox sitting in for Jill Bennett, who is sitting in for Simi Sarah as the CKNW summer relief schedule kicks in. It's going to be an interesting uh, few weeks ahead as we all get some vacation time that uh, we're all very much in need of. Yesterday, we touched on this and, and John identified it at the time as the poorest kept secret in Vancouver sports. We touched on the, the when the story broke, the, uh, the fact that the Vancouver Canucks have brought back numbers 22 and 33 Henrik and Daniel Sedin no not as players they're definitely done but in a new management position for both of them our show contributor John Jang has been diving into the story and has some more details on the background John Good afternoon, Sterling. It was announced yesterday, but official as of this morning. The Vancouver Canucks have hired Henrik and Daniel Sedin as special advisors to general manager Jim Benning. In this new role, both brothers will learn and support all areas of the team's hockey operations department. That includes player evaluation, player development, and communication from the amateur to the NHL level. They will work extensively with the Abbotsford minor league team and join the group that plans and operates the NHL entry draft, the free agency process, and trade deadline. Canucks general manager Jim Benning joined Henrik and Daniel in a media conference this morning, starting with this opening statement. On behalf of the entire organization, the Vancouver Canucks are excited and honored to welcome two members of the staff who need no introduction, Henrik and Daniel Sedin. It's a special day for the team to be able to add the playing experience, hockey IQ, and character of the Sedins to our front office. We're grateful to have Henrik and Daniel Sedin start the next stage of their careers and learn the business side of the game with us. Just want to thank the Aquilini family and Jim for, for giving us this opportunity, first of all. Uh, and it, it's taken some time. I mean, we, we don't take this, uh, this lightly. Uh, we wanted to make sure that... Uh, uh, we came in in the right roles and, and uh, feeling that we can that we can do our, our best job and, and trying to help. While this hiring is being celebrated by Canucks fans, who are happy to see the franchise's two all-time leading scorers back in the fold, they were asked why they decided to come back, considering at this point they have no need for money or fame. Well, there's uh, number number one, our, our, and our only answer is that we care about this team. That's... Uh, and uh, we've said after we, we were done playing that we, this is a side of the, the game where I think we, we can help and, and we've taken our time and uh, we, we care a lot about this team. So to be able to come back and, and help uh, is, uh, is a great feeling. Uh, 
hopefully there's uh, or hopefully, but uh, we're not looking for for fame again. That's uh, uh, let's be clear with that. So we're, we're hoping to come in and do a good job and and uh, uh, try to stay in the background as, as much as possible. They quickly shot down any notion that the announcement was a publicity stunt or a spin move to try and garner the organization some easy brownie points with a frustrated fan base. No, we like Hendrik said, we we care about this team. Uh, care about the people that work here. That's the number one reason. Uh, the only reason we come in. Uh, uh, we want to do a good job, and uh, that's been our mindset from from the first day we came here, twenty something years ago. So we'll we'll do the same in this role, and and uh, we're looking forward to to seeing this side of the business. It's going to take a lot of learning, and uh, we're aware of that, but we're one hundred percent committed. As any Canucks fan can tell you, the Sedins were inseparable on the ice. Daniel, the shooter; Henrik, the playmaker. Perfect. So naturally, they were asked how they would split up their newfound duties as special advisors. For example, if they would both learn everything together, or if they would delegate certain tasks to each person. Well, I, I well, I think in, in an organization, I think everyone works together. Uh, that doesn't matter if you're if you're the GM or the owner or the uh, uh, the players. You should all all work together towards the same same goal. So that's. Uh, uh, if that's uh, that doesn't mean we're going to watch every practice together or uh, do those things, but we 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 work together for sure. Not even 24 hours on the job, and they were asked about what this current Canucks team needs in order to once again find success back on the ice. Uh, well, like I said, we 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 we've been on good teams. Uh, I think number one to create uh, a winning. Uh, uh, a winning organization is that you you create the, the the right culture, and that's something that we truly believed in when we played, and and what we had on good teams, and that means uh, like Dan talked about before, you uh, and it starts with your top players. You come in in, in the in the best shape you can. Uh, you train the right the, the right way. Uh, you do the right things in in, in practice. Uh, uh, and you lead the way on the ice when they, when it comes to games, and and from from there it's gonna it's gonna trickle down, and, and uh, the the new the young guys to come into the team they're gonna see that, and they're gonna they're gonna start doing the right things right away. So I think most of that that's something that we truly believe in, and then you can talk about players players here and there and who who to bring in, but uh, we want to try to 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 help the, the young guys here in the core group take the next step and. and uh, become even better. So that's that's what, what, what we're excited for. And considering it was just a few short years ago that Travis Green was their coach and players like Bo Horvat and Brock Besser were their teammates, they were asked about the communication that exists between this team and both of them as they move into their new roles and if they can act as a sounding board for some of the players at the management level. Well, we, we, we stepped away and, and because of COVID, we haven't been around that much. Uh, the first year, we, we tried to come down as, as, as often as we, as we could just to sit down and, and have a coffee and, and chat with the, with the players there and, uh, and coaches. And we, we have we've met uh, with the coaches uh, uh, here and there to discuss things uh, and be uh, uh, a sounding board and, and, uh, and those kinds of things. But the last year and a half, there, there hasn't been as much as, as before. And finally, they were asked about the importance of the Canucks minor league affiliate moving from Utica, New York to Abbotsford and the role that played in convincing them to sign up as the team's newest special advisors. Well, I think it's great that, that it's in Abbotsford. I think it's, it's close. Uh, it's uh, easy for 
for us and, and uh, management and coaches to go down and watch those players. Uh, so th- th- that's, I think, it's, it's a perfect uh, solution uh, in, that, in those regards. Uh, for us to, to be able to drive down and, uh, and watch those guys practice and play games, uh, it's going to be good for us. Uh, but coming back to that, like we, we came back because we care about this team and we, we wouldn't come back if we weren't able to, to put 100% into this job. So... That's uh, that's been kind of our mindset uh, these last uh, years that we that we've been retired. We we want to come back and and be able to to put time into this to this job. We we don't take it lightly. That's for sure. And one final tidbit shared by General Manager Jim Benning. He confirmed today that Ryan Johnson, the current Director of Player Development for the Canucks, would be promoted to General Manager of the incoming Abbotsford team. Yeah, we're uh, we're going to have an announcement on that here coming up here, but we're, Ryan's going to be the general manager in Abbotsford, and uh, we're going to bring up our coaching staff in Utica. will be joining us in, in Abbotsford too. All in all, it's a rare victory for the Canucks after bottoming out as the least successful team in the temporary All-Canadian North Division. From this contributor's perspective, however, it's hard to see this as anything other than a grooming and eventual takeover. For example, they would learn for two or three years in this current position and then possibly step in as the Canucks' newest general manager and assistant GM a few years down the road. Now, ultimately, time will tell exactly how this is going to impact the team and organization long term, but keep in mind... The organization never replaced the president of hockey operations role when Trevor Linden left that position in July of 2018. There's John Jang and uh, John, great work, uh, by the way, and uh, going down to the presser and having a chance to interview Henrik and Daniel Sedin. You asked them specifically about, are you going to split yourselves up and one head one way and then one to the other sort of spread the workload around? They, they kind of dodged the question, but no, they're pretty, pretty joined at the hip in this effort, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, that wasn't my question per se, but it was definitely one of the earlier ones Earlier ones that were asked of them. And uh, they just seem like they're both focused. They want to learn together. Uh, it'll be interesting. I don't think we've ever seen teams hire two special advisors at once, both with kind of the same role in mind. So it's going to be, uh, I-, I think, a great move. They needed more voices in that, in that uh, front office. And they did say, look, we don't agree on everything. And it's always mm-hmm. good to have a little bit, bit of disagreement. Sometimes conflict uh, lets both parties arrive at a better destination so we'll see how that works out and i'll bet you they turn out to be outstanding sounding boards for the players that conduit the the assistant coaches play that role on some teams Uh, you can see those two uh, easily falling into that with the canucks yeah, especially this past season, the players were kind of making comments throughout the year that maybe some of what they were sharing uh, frustrated that management maybe weren't getting the message, especially in cases like the COVID-19 outbreak that ran yeah. through the team earlier in the season, Sterling. There was a lot of comments made to the public that we generally don't see from guys like Bo Horvat. So that to me seemed like, is there any actual direct communication between the players and the front office with the general managers? I'm not sure if there was, but now... Now that the Sedins are kind of in that position, it allows the players to maybe use them as that middleman to say, hey, this is how we're feeling and thinking. Maybe you can express it to the others that uh, we want certain things to be happening. Well, they can't have had a much worse year than the one they've just had. So everything, literally, John, as a result of this today, looking even more up than it was yesterday. Thanks for this. Absolutely. Yeah, you got it. Thanks, Sterling.